This is Peace Talks Radio, the series about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Kamrick. As we've documented on our program from time to time, religion has been both a divisive agent in history, touching off much conflict, and a source of inspiration in resolving conflict. In recent years, for example, the Catholic Church has been mired in its very real and massive sexual abuse scandal, which has tarnished the faith's reputation globally. And yet, its history also holds many courageous stories of people working for peace, social justice, and economic equity. We're going to spend some time on those stories on today's program. Sometimes, that socially conscious work has brought Catholics in conflict with more conservative elements in the church and in society. Sometimes, it has cost them their lives. The lessons of their lives offer rich examples for all of us, though, regardless of our spiritual beliefs, on how to live more compassionately and justly. Today, Megan Kamrick talks with three guests. Later, Kerry Walters, discussing his book, St. Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr. She also talks with Sister Simone Campbell, a contemporary advocate of social justice and one of the leaders of the Nuns on the Bus movement. But first, Kate Hennessy, who's the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, who co-founded the Catholic Worker Movement. The worker houses, which still exist today, embody the idea of radical hospitality, taking care of those most in need. Hennessy's book, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, is an intimate portrait of Dorothy Day, who is a candidate for sainthood. But Dorothy Day's early life was definitely not religious. She wrote for leftist publications, and her friends were some of the most famous radical thinkers and writers in Greenwich Village in the early 20th century. She had a failed marriage, an illegal abortion, a child out of wedlock, and even attempted suicide. Dorothy Day was arrested several times in the 1920s with suffragists and then under the Palmer Red Raids. But her life took a dramatic turn in 1927 when she became a Catholic. Here's Megan Kamrick with Kate Hennessy. Who was Peter Morin and what impact did he have on her life? It was a surprise. He was sent to her. She was um, working as a journalist and a researcher. Uh, She was covering these hunger marches. This was in 1932. The country at that point was just on the verge of falling apart. And um, she just said to herself, why am I here? What, What do I do? And she met Peter Morin. You know, at this point, my grandmother had had a very traditional religious instruction, and she knew nothing about the Catholic teachings on social justice. And uh, Peter Morin just laid it all out to her, said, "This, these are the teachings of the Catholic Church on social justice, and I have a program for how we can do this. Most people thought he was a little bit crazy, but my grandmother suddenly started hearing what he was saying. And she said, okay, let's start a paper. I can do that. They didn't start the Catholic worker movement. They started with just a paper that was meant to instruct people on the church's teachings on social justice. But you start talking about these things. And they started the paper in May of 1933, which of course was the worst year of the Depression. And people immediately started saying, well, where are these houses of hospitality? You know, where can we get help? We need help. And my grandmother, being very practical, said, okay, that's our next step. And before she knew it, she was the leader of a movement around the country of people opening up houses of hospitality, serving soup, giving clothing, shelter, which is, you know, still with us today. 
Why was voluntary poverty so important for the people who would live at these houses, at the Catholic workers? And, and how did that relate to the nonviolence the worker also advocated? There's this saying that people like to explain my grandmother's actions in that uh, she would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And one of the ways that she would do this, she says, we cannot be wealthy ourselves until other poor people that that we're here to help you because you know it's incredibly disrespectful for one thing and also people don't believe you you're not really going to change people's lives if you're coming from a position of comfort and privilege and also there is an element for voluntary poverty that had to do with we are a heavily consumer society and we're seeing, I mean, of course, they were talking about this in 1933, but we really see it now is that we can't keep consuming so much because we're doing great damage. We have to live simpler lives. Now, in terms of how that connects to nonviolence, I mean, one of the reasons that war happens is this desire to control for resources. A lot of our military strategies here in the U.S. are exactly that. You know, we're trying to have control over what we need from other countries. And so to simplify our lives makes it less imperative that we be a war economy. You write that your grandmother, Dorothy Day, believed not only that she could change the world, but it was her obligation to do so. Why did she feel this so strongly? It was harder for her to do nothing than to do something. And she definitely felt that she failed in her work. I mean, as a, an older woman, the last three years of her life, she felt her failures deeply, that she really tried to change the world. And what happened is that just that day in, day out, working to help people, you know, she lived at the Catholic Worker House in New York City. She never lived in her own place. She was with you know, her movement day in, day out for almost 50 years. There didn't seem to be any end to it. There didn't seem to be any um, concrete change. But she says, you cannot do nothing. You, know, you, you have to keep going, even in the face of failure. And she said, we have to expect failure. She said that, you know, after all, Jesus Christ was the world's greatest failure. He died on the cross. She had a real fascination with people and their stories. How did that become part of the Catholic worker ethos? She was a writer, as I mentioned. So she, she was always looking to hear people's stories. And she was very, very good at just listening. Storytelling is probably the most powerful way for us to understand each other, to become more human to each other, and her ability to elicit these stories from people and then to write about them grabbed people's imagination and really set the framework, the foundation for the Catholic worker. You know, one of my favorite writings from her are her obituaries of people. She just wrote these wonderful stories of who we each are, and I think that is what really helps change us much more than, than any other kind of statement of belief. The descriptions you have of the Catholic worker houses was very evocative. It was pretty chaotic. <laughs> Why was that part of what the worker was like? I know they've been called anarchists. I don't know if they're strictly anarchists. 
you know, anarchist is a, is a word that is loaded these days. I mean, I think it's pretty much in people's minds uh, of that violent anarchist, you know, out there to dis- disrupt everything. And that certainly wasn't what they're about. What they're about is um, more of a personalism, more personal responsibility. That also required leaving people their freedom. The worker at various times has tried to institute rules and regulations, and some of the worker houses now around the country are very clear in their rules and regulations. But my grandmother believed that you, when you're living with people who are truly destitute, who have truly hit bottom, and those are the people that they were bringing into their homes, um, you have to give them their freedom and space and respect so they could do whatever they needed to do or not do. And I would say the Catholic worker is kind of like a semi-controlled chaos. It's, um, I mean, it's a miracle that that these houses are still with us. It's a miracle that this movement is still with us 86 years later. Even in the early days of the worker in the 1930s, people began to speculate that Dorothy Day had mystical or saintly kinds of visions why did she provoke this kind of reaction, and how did she how did she respond to that? Uh, she had an extraordinary presence. You met her, you never forgot. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've met people who said, "I met your grandmother once when I was eighteen years old for ten minutes, and my life hasn't been the same since." So I think that there is this kind of fascination with, well, who was she, and there must be some kind of extraordinary mystical element to her. Now, I mean, I believe she was a mystic, but not in the the, the term of kind of otherworldly. She was not that at all. She really had a a firm grounding in this world while also really seeing the world beyond this world. I mean, I think mystics can really um, integrate, you know, that paradox. You know, in terms of visions and things like that, she had no patience for people's uh, desire. I think, you know... I think she was visited by several nuns who said, we hear that you have visions. And she responded, yeah, visions of unpaid bills. At the same time, people might be calling her a saint. Some people were calling her a communist. How did all of these labels fail to capture her complexity? Well, I think we like to simplify things. She did not agree with um, communist policies and communist uh, beliefs. She did not feel that we should rely upon the state for anything. So I think that's really hard for people to kind of to reconcile the fact that for some of her good friends were still members of the Communist Party, and yet she had no interest in, in, in that ideology at all. And so I think, you know, we try to kind of accept her, reject her based on these very simplistic notions, whereas, I mean, really, I think the bottom line for her is this human connection that that's what we are asked to do day in and day out is to have this human connection. That's not something, that's not a message that we are used to hearing. In a sense, she seemed to be living what's called the Catholic consistent ethic of life, which never fits into one political philosophy because it opposes abortion, opposes war, it opposes capital punishment, basically violence in all forms. How did this affect how she was viewed? You know, that term, consistent life ethic, that wasn't really used in her lifetime. That has kind of come after her her life, and I think she would completely see herself in that you know, every decade seems to go to, to lean one way or the other. And I'm not really sure where we are now, but I have great faith in her ability to keep influencing us even so long after her death. 
I, mean, I think that's one of the extraordinary things about her is that her presence is growing uh, even more. Year by year, I'm, I'm seeing it grow more and more, which, which is just an extraordinary and uh, a mystery. So I have great hope that her views will just keep sticking with us, that we'll keep you know, asking these questions. Well, if I am against abortion, why am I supporting nuclear weapons? I mean, these are big questions, which she keeps provoking us. Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker, as you say, were often ahead of later movements. She got involved in civil rights in the 1930s. She was a pacifist even during World War II, which was very controversial with a lot of her friends. She took part in anti-nuclear protests by refusing to comply with air raid drills. She wrote about Vietnam way back in 1954, and she wanted the bishops to speak out against nuclear weapons. Now, eventually they did issue a pastoral letter, but it was shortly after she died. Do you think she helped nudge the church and other Catholics on these issues? Absolutely. I think she did. I mean, the fact that she was prophetic— you know, it's it's also hard. She certainly felt that um, she had been a failure. She also used to say, you never know. You throw a pebble into the pond and what ripples, where the ripples lead. You know, what she says is not easy. And we each, each generation seems to have to come to it in their own way, in their own manner. You know, the church actually is not making this easy either. I mean, you know, there you still have bishops who are very pro-nuclear even considering the, the vast um, damage that our nuclear arsenal can do today. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's unthinkable. Your grandmother worked for voting rights, especially during the civil rights movement, of course, with the suffragists earlier on. She never herself voted. Why? <laughs> no, she didn't vote. This is a very tricky question. I mean, I've had people say to me, well, I'm not listening to your grandmother ever again. She never voted. You know, what does she have to say to us? Which um, I think is not really a fair assessment because she spent her entire life trying to change the world. You know, she never told people not to vote. That wasn't her way at all. She, you know, was perfectly happy that people voted, but she herself was not going to do so because she did not believe that any answers lie within the government. What she was looking for was something that was completely outside of politics and that could not be addressed in the political arena. Now, that said, she also understood that, for example, with the you know, civil rights, that had to be done legislatively, clearly. But she herself, was that was not her method. That was not her way. Her way was a much longer term she believed in the long view, and what she meant by the long view was centuries. How do we work for true change, and um, change that we probably will not see in our lifetime? I think that um, we've kind of developed a crazy way of living in which we forget that we actually do need to live as if we will not see the fruits of our labors, and that that's absolutely essential for us as a, as a community, as a society, as a, as a species. During the Vietnam War, she quoted St. James, who said the roots of violence are fear, lack of forgiveness, and greed. How did she and the Catholic worker try to counteract those things? Well, I think one of the elements definitely is the, the notion of voluntary poverty. You know, let's stop being personally needing more than what we need, you know, wanting more than what we need. Let's, let's live more simply. You know, she also said that in the Catholic worker, 
they experience all types of warfare. And she spoke of, you know, gender war, racial war, class war, you know, all these things. She says, you know, we live with this daily. We all live with this kind of level of violence. You know, in terms of disconnecting from war, you know, she said on a personal level, we just have to make decisions that are not, you know, to, to not be part of that industry. And it is, it's an incredible industry. Um, a lot of people rely upon the military for their living. And she's saying, well, we have to start in a very personal level to make the decision not to do this. You know, she, she says nothing is solved through war. Who suffers the most in war? You know, it's the poor, it's the land, it's, you know, it's not the powers that be. She also bring out how much joy she found in life, although she did struggle often with depression. How did she live that? She had an incredible eye for beauty in so many ways, and she had to develop this because she lived in the worst neighborhoods of New York City. If I could tell you just how dreadful these Catholic worker houses were, and she suffered from that. You know, this is not something that she would have chosen, but she had to develop this incredibly fine-tuned sense and wide varying notion of what beauty is. This is another one of these questions that I can't really answer. I mean, what did she, why did she love that quote from Dostoevsky so much, the world would be saved by beauty? I mean, what does that mean? What does beauty mean when we open ourselves up to whatever we find beautiful? And I think it, it can just be anything practically. You know, she loved opera. She absolutely would be transported when she would listen to opera. She loved art. She loved uh, literature. She loved people. She loved people's faces. She loved, you know, a beautiful dish or, you know, anything or a tree that was growing out on, you know, the sidewalk in these dreadful slums. I mean, she she really could, could see these things and they opened her up in a way that I think that um, we need, that there's some kind of transformation. And I'm not going to be able to explain this or articulate this clearly because I think this is another one of these mysteries. But when we open ourselves up to these moments of profound beauty, we are changed. And in our change, we can then change the world. She wanted others to find their vocations. And I mean, not necessarily religious vocation, like a priest, but what what you're meant to do in life. And she said, you will know your vocation by the joy it brings you. She struggled for many years to find her path. What do you think was her vocation? Oh, she was very clear on what her vocation was. She says, writing is my vocation. I'm a writer. What she struggled with until Peter Morn showed up and then they fell into starting the Catholic Worker Movement was how to combine these two worlds that she now found herself in. You know, one was the world of the journalist, the radical journalist. You know, her, all her friends were of that radical era of the 1920s and then with her newfound faith, which was not at all involved with these things. So that was the struggle, you know, of how to integrate these two parts of her lives. And then the Catholic Worker provided that. Um, in terms of, of what she was speaking to of others about vocation, yes, this, she was not speaking about a religious vocation. She was speaking about what is it that we are each called to do. For me personally, to hear her say, you will know your vocation by the joy it brings you, this was an incredibly important formative experience for me to hear her that because, you know, I can't tell you how hard it is to be a granddaughter of someone who is so intense and so powerful and so focused, I just felt like, well, I, 
there's no way I can ever be as focused as she was. And who am I meant, you know, who am I? What am I meant to do? It was really a struggle for me. But when I read that, that was like this light bulb went off in myself. Now, I think the second thing about, I just wanted to say about finding your vocation is that we have kind of confused, you know, finding our vocation with finding our career. And she wasn't saying that at all. She's, you know, she said, well, oftentimes your vocation will not earn you any money. That is a um, distinction that um, has to be made that, you know, she's not saying that we, we need to find how we're going to make money. We need to find what we are meant to do and do whatever it takes to follow that vocation. We all live compromised lives. We all have to compromise in some way. We can only do our best and do what we need to do while also doing what we have to do, which may be two separate things. She's a candidate for a canonization for sainthood. How would she react to that? Oh, she would have no interest, ultimately. She just said, do the work, do the work. <laughs> you know, she loved the saints herself, and she found them incredibly important. She's also famously uh, um, quoted as saying, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And um, people see that as kind of like, well, then let's not make her a saint. She doesn't want to be one. But I think that that's not the point at all. For one, it's not her call. This is not her decision. This is a decision for those of us who she has left behind and, and we're trying to make sense of the world. Also, you know, what she was saying is the fact that people, by calling her a saint, it's a way of walking away from one's own responsibility. She would say, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not doing anything that you can't do. You find out what you need to do and you do it. You do the work. And your book really brings home how difficult her path was. She struggled with depression. She had a loving but difficult relationship with your mother. The worker houses and the needs of so many people often weighed on her. War never seems to end. And as you said, near the end of her life, she actually said, I feel like an utter failure. And I'd like you to read a brief passage that addressed those feelings of hopelessness. Still, she said, we must keep moving. Take as many steps as you can. Bear witness. Stand fast. Huddle together in faith and community. And dream. We have, she said, a responsibility to hope and to dream of a better world. That was Kate Hennessy. Her book about her grandmother is The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. There are more than 200 Catholic worker houses in the U.S. and internationally, and the newspaper co-founded by Day is still being published. All of Day's own books are still in print as well. Dorothy Day died in November 1980. Earlier that same year, Archbishop Oscar Romero was murdered in El Salvador. When we come back, we'll talk with Professor Kerry Walters about his book, Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, Saint, when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Megan Kamrick. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. Those programs are also on iTunes, too, as podcasts. We continue our show now on Catholic peacemakers with a look at Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. As we noted, Romero was assassinated in 1980 while saying Mass, and he was canonized in 2018. He was a retiring and somewhat conservative priest, but he was galvanized in the last years of his life to speak out against the violence in El Salvador. Romero took up the cause of the poor and finally called directly upon the military to stop the repression of campesinos and activists. In doing so, he incurred the wrath of the government, which was supported by the United States. Kerry Walters is a professor emeritus of philosophy and peace and justice studies at Gettysburg College. He wrote the book, St. Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr. Now later during the interview, we'll hear part of the homily Oscar Romero gave the day before he was killed, and part of the same sermon dramatized in the film Romero, starring the actor Raul Julia as Oscar Romero. Throughout most of his life, he did help the poor a great deal, but did he criticize the structures of poverty? He finally began to in the last three years of his life. Before then, he had been a pretty traditional cleric. And so in the early years, he really wasn't concerned about um, social or economic institutions that were oppressive. It was only after he became archbishop, only after he began to make personal contact with people that he began to reflect upon what it was in the society that was causing such suffering. Your book is titled St. Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, and Martyr. What was he like as a pastor? He was an incredible pastor from everything that I've been able to read. Despite those dry years between 1967 and 1974, when he was basically a diocesan administrator, and which he later called the worst years of his life, he seemed to have a great deal of empathy as a pastor. He would climb on mules and go into the highlands and the jungles to visit tiny little villages to confirm kids. His door was always open to anyone who wanted to see him. Uh, the people loved him. Unfortunately, his fellow priests tended not to be as fond of him. In the 1960s, two fundamental shifts took place in the church. There was Vatican II and then the Medellin Conference. How did these affect Oscar Romero? Romero fought tooth and nail against the Medellin Conference and its insistence that the churches in South America, the church's proper role was to try and raise the living standard of those who were oppressed and poor. Uh, the church called it the preferential option for the poor. On the other hand, he seems to have accepted, even if initially a little reluctantly, the social teachings that came out of Vatican II in the early 60s. And so for a few years, it seems to me he can be reasonably described as waffling uh, between two polarities that he couldn't quite reconcile in his own mind. On the one hand, a distrust of the Medellin, preferential option for the poor. On the other hand, an embrace, tentative though it may have been at first, of Vatican II social teachings. The social teachings of the church, beginning with Leo and continuing to the present day, um, all rest upon one fundamental conviction, and that is the inherent dignity of the human being. 
if one accepts that human beings possess an inherent dignity because they're made for Romero in the image of God, then it follows that they need to be treated in, a, in, in appropriate ways and treated not just as individuals in appropriate ways, but as members of society. The idea of the Christian-based communities emerged from Medellin as well. What were these and why were they so important in El Salvador in the 70s and in Oscar Romero's life? A base community was a circle of people in villages, usually campesino people, um, who would meet periodically to read or to have read to them if they couldn't read certain portions of the scripture and then discuss how the scripture related to their own lives. It was an attempt to make the Bible come alive and to try and show people that the suffering and the oppression that they may be experiencing wasn't necessary. It wasn't a punishment for their sin. It wasn't just the way things were, that God through the Bible had preached the upside down kingdom in which want and disparity uh, were missing. Oscar Romero <laughs> despised these base communities uh, when they first began. Uh, but again, part of his conversion was to recognize that the campesinos, which like most South American clerics of the time he was rather disdainful of, had a great deal of lived wisdom to not only offer one another, but to offer people like him. They also became sources of suspicion, of course, to the military government that they were actually communist cells or fomenting revolution. They certainly did, and it wasn't unusual for government forces to raid villages that had base communities and to disappear um, members or at least leaders of the base communities. Romero was very suspicious of liberation theology. Could you explain what that was and why he disliked it? Yeah, liberation theology arose from the material situation, uh, economic situation and political situation in South America. Um, it was an attempt to um, try and apply the basic social teachings of the church to the concrete facts on the ground in South America. Most of the liberation theologians were pretty impressed by Marxist methodology. They didn't buy into, with a few exceptions, they didn't buy into the materialism of Marx, but they thought that Marx had a pretty good methodological explanation for why structures of oppression arose in the first place. What uh, Romero objected to initially was what most of the more traditionally minded clerics objected to. He feared that uh, Marxists and communists were simply using naive churchmen in order to foment a communist revolution. He's such an interesting bundle of contradictions. He was devoted to Ignatian spirituality, yet for many years he was hostile to the Jesuits, the order founded by St. Ignatius. And he was also close to Opus Dei, a very, very conservative group associated with wealthy and powerful people in Latin America. How did he encompass these huge contradictions? Yeah, isn't that interesting? I've always been struck by uh, those contradictions in Romero's life. Jesuits were looked at with a great deal of suspicion by the establishment because they were seen as liberation theologians who wanted to upset the social order. And you're absolutely right, Megan. Romero fought with them 
throughout uh, these dark years of his between 1967 and, and 74. He accused them of fomenting dissent in El Salvador. Um, he tried to close down uh, Jesuit-run schools. And you're also quite right about the Opus Dei. You would think that if there was any person, at least in the last three years of his life, who wouldn't be sympathetic to Opus Dei, it would be Romero. But in point of fact, if we read his letters and, and some of his journal entries, he apparently derived great spiritual strength from Opus Dei. He, his confessor was a member of Opus Dei. And until the day he died, Romero was a dedicated supporter of Opus Dei. When he was named Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977, he was considered to be someone who wouldn't rock the boat. He was malleable. But you write that change was actually already happening in him. Can you talk more about that? He had a kind of a meek demeanor for most of his life. And so it was easy, I think, for power mongers to believe that this was a guy who could be easily controlled. He also tended to be rather shy. He was never terribly comfortable in social gatherings. He just seemed, as you put it, very malleable. And so when the Archbishopric of San Salvador uh, became open after Archbishop Chavez announced that he was going to retire, everybody who was in government immediately thought of Romero as a replacement because they thought he would be their archbishop. In point of fact, though, he had begun to have grave doubts about um, the oligarchy that basically ran El Salvador. Um, he had gone to seminary in Rome with one of the sons of the oligarchy and was quite fond of him. And through him had come into personal contact with a lot of the ruling class in El Salvador. That may be one of the reasons why they thought he was their guy. They could manipulate him. But the more he came to know them and began to look at their lifestyle, the more things began to stick in his craw about the social institutions that defined El Salvador at the time. And of course, this, in the 70s, the violence was escalating. It was just hard and would continue to escalate. And not only to the end of his life, but after his life, when he was assassinated, civil war, of course, broke out and ripped the country apart. Romero was introverted. He was shy. He didn't make friends very easily. One unlikely friend was a Jesuit priest, Rutilio Grande. He was murdered not long after Romero became archbishop. How did this become a turning point for him? Isn't that strange that these two men would have become friends? Um, yeah, Rutilio was a Jesuit. He had psychological difficulties all of his life, but he was absolutely committed to the idea of base communities of empowering campesinos both materially and spiritually. And so in a move that was really quite unusual for Jesuits in El Salvador at the day, he went out and lived with the campesinos. He dressed at, like the campesinos did. He insisted that they not call him Father Rutilio. Needless to say, this raised a lot of anger on the part of the powers that be because they rightly saw Grande trying to subvert their authority. And in February of 1977, they assassinated him, um, along with a few other people who were in uh, a uh, vehicle with him. He had been the master of ceremonies at uh, Romero's installation as archbishop. And so when Romero heard that Grande had been assassinated, he immediately took off for the small village in which Grande's body lay. And when he saw the state of the body, one onlooker said that Grande had been shot so many times that he had practically disintegrated. He had this tipping point that I think had been building for a few years and realized that 
not only were campesinos in danger, but the church was also in danger, and that people who stood up for, say, the social teachings of the church, or even just common decency, ran great risk in El Salvador of the day. What was his vision for nonviolence and the church's role? He was absolutely convinced that individuals, as well as institutions like the church, as well as society at large, if they were to thrive spiritually and materially, had to somehow comport themselves to the vision of peace and equity and compassion and kindness and love that was preached and practiced by Jesus. Any institution or any action of people in charge that violated that Christocentric vision was something that he simply felt he had to speak out uh, against in his three years as Archbishop of San Salvador. And he did uh, in sermons, in pastoral letters, on the radio, and on loudspeakers strapped onto the back of Jeeps. He brought this message of nonviolence. Also, there was, of course, insurgent groups popping up all around the country, armed insurgent groups in response to this. And he also tried to bring this idea of nonviolence there unsuccessfully. Yeah, in a certain kind of way, he was, he was caught between a rock and a hard place because after a certain point, the ruling junta came to deeply distrust him and, in fact, to despise him because of what they considered to be his betrayal of them. We, they had put him in charge of the archbishopric, and here he was doing all of these horrible things that the liberation theo theologians talked about. And on the other hand, some of the insurgent groups, which were primarily Marxist and, and were deeply suspicious of the church because of the way the church had partnered with the oppressive state for so many years, were also deeply distrustful of him. Um, it, it must have been a lonely place for him to be. In these last three years of his life, the violence continued to escalate. I mean, just before he was murdered, there were dead bodies, mutilated bodies in public places daily as a threat to anybody else to take action or to resist. And priests were murdered. He received death threats. He was also battling within the church. Why was he running afoul of the church hierarchy? Yeah, it was, a, it was a frightening time. I can't even imagine being a priest during that era in El Salvador. One of the most popular slogans that you saw spray-painted on walls everywhere was, be a patriot, kill a priest. And there were several priests during his archbishopric uh, in uh, San Salvador who were, in fact, murdered. One of them, uh, at least one of them, someone who he had ordained. He ran afoul of the bishops not all of the bishops, but most of the bishops in El Salvador, because they thought that he was a radical. They thought that he was naive and was being manipulated by the leftists, and they did everything that they could to get in his way. Uh, and yet, you write, even though it was this difficult time, kind of the last year of his life, he found an inner peace. Yeah, that's interesting too, isn't it? When he finally um, became a bishop in his own right, um, and then became archbishop, I think he began to see that this is where God, if you want to put it in terms like that, had been leading him all along. He was no longer doing office stuff, if you will. He was now finally being a pastor. And he was being a pastor not just to individuals, but he got the sense that he was a pastor to the entire nation. Because what he was trying to do was to remind El Salvador that it was named after the Savior, and that it as a consequence, had a role to play in the world that he considered to be all important to manifest the Christological heart of love and liberation uh, and freedom. 
He had this innate timidity and he was very insecure, as you mentioned before, and self-critical, which is kind of remarkable when you think about how outspoken he became just before his death. How did this manifest? If you read his sermons that were delivered every Sunday in the cathedral in uh, San Salvador, they take your breath away. Uh, Not only are they wonderful pastoral sermons, but they also almost always challenged not only the ruling junta, but also challenged the United States for supporting the juntas. Um, A good deal of his Sunday sermons, which were broadcast all over the country, tens of thousands of people listened to them, was a running chronicle of the week's news in which he would analyze uh, events that had happened. This many people had been killed. This village had been attacked. And those sermons, the powers that be eventually decided, were probably the single most dangerous weapon that they had had wielded against them. Romero the pastor was concerned with nurturing both the spirit of individuals and what he would have called the kingdom of God. Uh, What he was interested in was trying to help people recognize that they could live fuller, more richer lives, uh, but that the necessary condition for doing so had to be to do something about the oppressive institutions and structures that were in El Salvador at the time. He never played the zero-sum game that I think a lot of politicians then and now play. He was always willing to listen. He was always willing to uh, try and see where the other person was coming from just so long as they could agree on the ground rules of nonviolence. As you mentioned, he also called out the United States for supporting the Salvadoran military and government. He wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter in an effort to stop that support. He also read this letter out loud during his homily. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, not only is he usurping the prerogative of government by writing directly to the president of the United States, but he also is announcing it without Uh, any inhibition whatsoever over national radio and reading the letter. In those days, of course, there was this Cold War going on in which the United States was absolutely convinced that if a single country in Central America, quote unquote, fell to the communists, then the domino effect would kick in and Pretty soon, Soviets would be in San Francisco and San Diego. And so the United States was deeply invested in propping up the right-wing juntas that El Salvador suffered under during Romero's lifetime. And as a consequence, sent a lot of money, sent a lot of armaments. And by the time he died, they were sending actual advisors, military men who trained El Salvadoran troops on the ground. In addition, a lot of El Salvadoran officers who were headed for high rank were being sent to the School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, where they learned methods of counterinsurgency. He feared his own violent death, but that didn't stop him from speaking out. His last homily was particularly provocative, but it's chilling to hear it, knowing that he was, just, he was killed just a day later, as he said mass. Who killed him? Well, we don't know even to this day, but it's pretty clear that he was assassinated on the orders of one of the death squads that had become so popular in El Salvador at the time, and almost certainly on the direct orders of Dobuzon, who who was an army officer, but who also was deeply implicated in the death squads. Romero's assassination, you're right, occurred right after this incredible sermon 
um, in which he basically said to the armed forces, and there were lots of them in the cathedral at the time listening to him, stop the oppression. Yo quisiera hacer un llamamiento de manera especial a los hombres del ejército. I'd like to make an appeal in a special way to the men in the army. Brothers, each one of you is one of us. We are the same people. The farmers and peasants that you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When you hear the words of a man telling you to kill, think instead in the words of God. Thou shalt not kill. No soldier is obliged to obey an order contrary to the law of God. In his name, and in the name of our tormented people who have suffered so much and whose laments cry out to heaven, I implore you, I beg you, I order you, stop the repression! Les suplico, les ruego, les ordeno en nombre de Dios. It just reminds me of Martin Luther King's last sermon. I think that's a really good comparison, as a matter of fact. It seems to me that both King and Romero had a pretty good idea that things were going to end badly for, for both of them. It's paradoxical, isn't it, Megan? You can't really, in some situations at any rate, preach the gospel of peace and nonviolence without inviting uh, violence to be thrown at you. And I think both of those men had a pretty good idea that that was going to happen. I know that Romero, in the last weeks of his life, insisted upon driving uh, wherever he was going by himself. Usually he had a chauffeur, usually he would have a couple of friends with him, but uh, he started driving by himself. And when one of his friends said, what are you doing? He said, I don't want anybody else to die because of me. When you go to El Salvador, I've been a couple of times, his image is everywhere. The country is engulfed in violence. Still, it's different violence, but it's, an, it's a legacy of those days. What do you think is Oscar Romero's legacy? Yeah, that's a great question. I think ultimately his legacy is one of hope. Hope is faith projected into the future that influences the way we live in the present. And what Romero and, and a couple of his associates did during his short time as archbishop was to give the people of El Salvador hope. Once again, he assured them that the oppression under which they suffered wasn't written in stone by the finger of God, but that it was the consequence of oppressive structures that were made by humans and could, as a consequence, be fixed by humans. This hope of a better world, once again, was centered squarely and always in what Romero took to be Christ, the center of all existence, and that only tended to deepen the hope that he felt and that he conveyed to people. It's amazing. A man who was bookish and shy and reticent and for a long time was a real company man when it came to the church, just blossomed towards the end of his life into, well, into a saint, a bona fide saint. That was Kerry Walters, author of the book St. Oscar Romero, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr. Romero was canonized in 2018. 
As with our other guests, you can hear Megan's complete interview with him on our website, peacetalksradio.com. Just look for the June 2019 episode. Just ahead, we'll hear from a contemporary advocate for social justice, Sister Simone Campbell, after this break on Peace Talks Radio. I'm Paul Ingalls with Megan Kamrick, and this is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of our episodes at peacetalksradio.com. Today, Megan is exploring Catholic peacemakers, including St. Oscar Romero and Dorothy Day. And now, we turn to a woman carrying on those same traditions today. Sister Simone Campbell is director of the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. She's also the leader of Network's Nuns on the Bus campaign, which launched cross-country trips starting in 2012 to visit communities and respond to policies they believe hurt the vulnerable in American society. What does following the gospel mean to you? For me, following the gospel is doing what Jesus did, which is always walking towards trouble. He walked towards the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ones that asked him, you know, those tricky questions and tried to trap him. He walked towards the Roman centurion who was the outsider, the suspicious one. He walked towards the lepers, the ones who were most outcast by their society. And he then created friendship with the apostles, with those around him. And so living the gospel for me is being willing to walk towards trouble and make friends in the process. It's kind of simple. You have chosen to engage in the political process and push back. Why did you decide that that was a path <laughs> you wanted to follow? Oh, glory. I like to blame it on the Holy Spirit again. But our foundress was the first woman in parliament in Hungary in the 20s when she was the head of our community. So we've always had these political roots, and that kind of stirred my imagination. I'm kind of political. and But then we're all social workers, and I discovered I'm not such a good social worker. I'm not very patient. And so I was doing community organizing and discovered that I wanted to go to law school because I hate power imbalance. So I wanted to be able to argue with legislators and go toe-to-toe. So I went to law school, and then I discovered I like practicing law. So then I practiced. I started a low-cost legal service center in Oakland, California, served the needs of the working poor for 18 years. And But it had always been my vision, my goal for myself to do public policy eventually. And I think it's because you can have a bigger impact on the lives of people all across the nation, people you'll never know. Let me give you an example is that we lobbied on the Affordable Care Act. 
I had the honor of writing what's called the Nun's Letter, which was signed by 58 Catholic sisters. It became the tipping point for getting health care passed. If you worked one-on-one in charity, you know, like in a hospital providing service, that's one at a time. But do you know, because we helped get this law passed, 23 million Americans have access to health care who did not have access beforehand. I think that's a pretty good return on investment. So... You write in your memoir, people want to turn away from pain and poverty and difficulty, but that's where life is. Oh, absolutely. I am really concerned that we've got all these ads on television to take away every conceivable pain that exists, because what it does is it numbs us to the reality of life. And it also makes us self-contained individuals. We're not meant to be that. We're communal creatures. We're meant to be in relationship with each other. And I think one of the big uh, challenges of our time is this hyper-individualism, that we can do it alone. Do you think that fosters violence and conflict? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because I need to protect mine. Nobody's going to protect me. Nobody has my back. So I'm always afraid. So I'm always heightened vigilance. And that we know then creates more trigger reaction, the fear factor. It's nuts. It's not. Our security is in being with each other, in knowing each other, talking to each other, being in relationship. What I've learned is having a broken heart then allows me to have room for everyone. Let me tell you a story about, you know, what do you do these nuns on the bus? Well, on the bus, we were in Savannah the, in October. Uh, we were doing a town hall. We had all these people here, and we got talking about the problems they were facing and all this. And a, a woman about, I don't know, 35, 40, stood up and said that she just wanted to ask us to remember her neighbor who had three young kids who had died the day before because she hadn't been able to afford her asthma inhaler because she didn't—South Carolina hadn't expanded Medicaid, so she had no access to health care. Well, that just broke my heart. I mean, a woman in our nation died, a mother in our nation died because she couldn't afford access to health care because of the willful refusal of South Carolina to expand Medicaid when they could provide care to everybody. That's just wrong. But the thing, having a broken heart then creates then compassion and connection. So she will always be part of my story, a part of who I am. And I don't even know her name, but she lives inside of me. And when someone else lives inside of you, isn't that what this life's about, is to be community together? You spoke at the Catholic Theological Union in 2018, and you said spiritual sustenance is necessary to change injustices. What did you mean? See, I have to know you matter to me. I have to know that I matter to you. I have to know that we are all in this together. And my work, I can't do this work just for me. That would be, that'd be nuts. But to do it for us, to be one body, to be connected, that's for me where the energy comes from. And Pope Francis, in his exhortation on holiness, I never think about being holy, but he's got these five indicators of holiness. And he says, the first one's perseverance. 
but but it's only because we're rooted in what really matters. The second one is joy and a sense of humor. Now that one I like a lot. The third one is passion and boldness. Because if you come from a spiritual place and we're not afraid for ourselves, you can leap and you can be engaged. The fourth is doing it in community where we do it together. And the fifth is living in constant prayer. Now some people think that's being in church. No. Living in constant prayer just means breathing and knowing I need help. I need your help. I need everybody's help. I'm willing to help too. Let's be a part of this. It's that rootedness in the integration of the fact that we're one body, that we're all together. That's where justice comes. I couldn't do this work if I thought I was doing it alone. In 2012, the Vatican, under the former Pope, Pope Benedict, investigated the leadership conference of women religious, which is the largest group of Catholic nuns in the U.S., for being focused too much on social justice and not enough on abortion and homosexuality, the Vatican criticized you and your sisters for espousing, quote, certain radical feminist themes. Incompatible, incompatible with the gospel. <laughs> I know. Isn't that great? <laughs> and people who didn't grow up in the Catholic tradition may wonder why you stay within an institution that seems determined to dissuade you from a path you feel so passionate about. The misperception is to equate the church with the leadership. The church is not the leadership. The church is the people of God. It's all of us together. So it's as much my church as it was Pope Benedict's church. But the gift of it, and this is, the, this is how the Holy Spirit works, in my view, is that you take a challenging situation, which was that. It was painful to be criticized by the Vatican. I mean, that's, ah, who could believe it? So the Vatican gave us all this notoriety, and then the question was, how do we stay faithful to mission? Kaboom, nuns on the bus. There are people who have similar social justice goals to you and to network, but they might be uncomfortable with having religion play a role in our political system, which is supposed to have a separation of church and state. People get the separation of church and state wrong all the time. They think that that means religious people shouldn't be involved in the state. No, 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 no. It means that the state shouldn't be promoting any religion, uh, shouldn't establish a religion, and don't suppress any church in the United States. Thomas Jefferson, who was not a religious man, said that people with religious values needed to be involved in the government and act on those values for democracy to survive, because otherwise we would have a valueless society, and that would never work. So I'm just doing what Thomas Jefferson said. That was Sister Simone Campbell, director of the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice and leader of the Nuns on the Bus movement. As with all of our guests, you can hear Megan's complete interviews on the June 2019 page, Catholic Peacemaking Icons, at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002, see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, Sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and make a donation, too, to keep the program going into the future. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. Support comes from listeners like you, like Betsy Christensen, who donated in memory of her parents, John and Audrey. We also have support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Camrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music